this morning. And as you turn in there, I'm going to read from John 20, which states John's purpose for writing the gospel. It says, And many other signs, the Greek word is semion, it's an important word with John. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. This is the purpose of the miracles or the signs, the Samayan, is that you might believe and that you might have life in his name or through his name. Now we come to Jesus' first miracle today in John chapter 2. And we may find some things interesting and fascinating that we've never seen before. It seems that I always do, and this is no exception as I was reading and preparing this week. So let's begin reading in John 2, verse 1. It says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six waterpots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, Every man in the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles, or should be translated signs, the Greek word semion here. So I'm going to read it that way. This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples <coughs> believed on him. All right, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm glad to have um, another pastor here in this church that helps keep me straight. And uh, we're honored to have Pastor Larry Allen here. And I'm going to ask him if he would ask God's blessing on the preaching of the word today. I have Father, we come before you. We realize, Lord, we come as you come into this house of worship. Because we seek your presence in our lives. We pray, Lord, that in whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in for, whatever our need is, that you would help us to reach out to you. And we pray, Father, that you bless each of us with your presence. Lord, guide us as we go through times that are difficult, times that are, that's been a struggle for our whole nation. And we pray, Lord, that you help us through this time. We pray, Father, that we bear days ahead. We ask, Father, that you bless our church. <coughs> Give us a message this morning that we need desperately to hear. 
pray, Father, that you give us a tiny vision that we might receive it and apply it to our lives. This we ask in thy name. Amen. Thank you, sir. All right. Jesus turned the water into wine. I think we might misunderstand the whole point of the, the story at times because we get lost in the details. You know, modern curiosity says, well, what kind of wine was it? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But, uh, so I'll just I hope you can just wait and sit tight for that. But... Uh, we, we might miss the significance if we're not careful. Now, I've heard some preach this that, well, why is this story in the Bible? Well, it shows that God cares about the little things. Amen. And he does. But what we fail to realize, because we live in a modern culture, is that this was no small affair. This was no small deal. Now, in the ancient world, a wedding was a huge deal. It was a huge uh, huge opportunity for the, uh, the, the community. And keep in mind that Nazareth and we're in Cain of Galilee, which is not far. Um, th these are small, we might even call them villages. They're, they're not really cities. They're small towns. And in these villages, everybody knows everybody. Kind of like Peachland or, or Marshfield. You know, we, we know each other. People know each other in, in the community. Now, in the Jewish wedding, and we study this a little bit around Christmas time every year, you understand that there was a betrothal period between the bridegroom and the, uh, and the bride for a re roughly a year. And during that time, there was a couple of things that took place. Number one, it was a chance for the, the, the bride to prove her chastity or her purity. Okay. And that's why Joseph was minded to divorce Mary when he initially found out she was pregnant. We'll talk more about that in just a moment, too. But it was a time to prove her purity. But for the, for the groom, now things are different now. Now, uh, the father of the bride is the one who's usually responsible for the, the, uh, the, the wedding and the cost. And having three daughters, you know, we understand that, don't we? Uh, we still got two more to go. <laughs> but in that culture, the groom's family took care of the... Uh, the cost. And during that time, he was to prove himself to be worthy of being a provider for this woman. So this thing has been planned for nearly a year, according to Jewish custom. And so for him to plan this for a year and not to factor in how much wine would be necessary for the wedding feast, and it would go on for seven days, many times, for them not to take that into account would be a colossal social disaster for this young man. He would be viewed as someone who was not an adequate provider for his wife. And it would bring great shame upon the community, upon this family. And that stigma, understand this, that stigma would never leave this young couple. As long as they lived, they would be the ones who had a party, a wedding, and they ran out of wine. This would be a disgrace, it would be a humiliation, an embarrassment for them. So when you read this, understand that for us it seems like, oh wow, they ran out of wine. We'll just run down to Nazareth to the Dollar General and get more, right? Because there's one in every city. No, uh, this was a huge faux pas, social faux pas, and it would have caused humiliation for this family 
as long as they lived in that, in that little town, and especially for the bridegroom, it would be a, a, a devastating thing for his uh, reputation. Now, it's not, it shouldn't be lost on us here that we find Jesus, first of all, coming to a wedding. This speaks of the sanctity of marriage. This speaks to what God thinks about it. You know, before God ever instituted the church, he instituted marriage, the family. And we see that. And it's always a great opportunity. A wedding is a wonderful opportunity to worship Jesus. It really is. And it always bothers me when young couples, uh, or middle-aged couples, whoever, when, when folks get married and they don't put God anywhere in their, in their arrangement, there's no worship there. I'm going to embarrass James and Amanda this one. Is that okay for me to do that? No, I'm going to anyway. <laughs> They've made it over a year now. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. And I did their wedding. And, you know, they did something that I don't think anybody has ever asked me to do in a wedding before. And they said, we want you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're going to have people in our wedding, friends and family, that might not ever come to church. And we want you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell you what, it touched my heart. And I'm not trying to shame anybody that didn't have an evangelistic uh, wedding. But I just thought, what a wonderful opportunity to share Jesus. And we know that Jesus is often associated with weddings. You know, John says uh, that he is the friend of who? The bridegroom. Jesus spoke of his return in terms of a Jewish wedding. There were ten virgins, remember? At midnight, there was a cry made. Go out to meet the bridegroom. Um... Also, Paul says in Ephesians that this is a great mystery, but somehow the union between husband and wife is the closest thing we have to understanding Christ in the church. So there's a great mystery. There's a great symbolism here. Now, the third day, we'll talk about that here in, uh, in just a moment also. Now, it says that the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Mary is not mentioned by name in John's gospel. She's just simply called the mother of of Jesus. And I have to believe, and this is just me speculating here, I have to believe that even though John may not have known, the Holy Spirit knew that sometime later, Mariology, or the worship and veneration of Mary, would, would soon be on the scene, and people would see her as a co-redemptrix. Uh, they would see her as a co-mediator with Jesus, and the Catholic Church historically has uh, emphasized that in order to get to Jesus, you need somehow to, to get Mary's help. And John's gospel here in this second chapter completely repudiates all of that. Okay, So I believe it's significant here that she is not named by name. She is the mother of Jesus. Now, there's no dishonor to Mary here, but we don't give her any inordinate um, attention or affection. But I will say a few things about Mary here in just a moment. I feel like I keep teasing this thing, but... We get into verse 2. It says that both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now we have, uh, there may be uh, six here, but we know that there's, um, there's Andrew and there's Peter and there's Philip and there's uh, Nathaniel and uh, possibly John is the unnamed disciple and maybe his brother James. Son of Zebedee. Don't know. But we know of at least five. Four named and one unnamed disciple. And here they are in Cana of Galilee. If you remember, Cana was Nathaniel's hometown. So he's, he's not far from home. We learn about that in John 21. It tells us that Nathaniel is from Cana 
of Galilee. Okay. Now we come to the problem in verse 3. The dilemma. It says that they ran out of wine. They, they wanted wine. And again, the mother of Jesus, not Mary, but the mother of Jesus, says unto Jesus, they have no wine. <laughs> now every husband in this room will appreciate this. I believe that Mary is using what we call indirect communication here. She's not just simply stating a matter of fact. Like when your wife says, honey, the garbage can is full. <laughs> She's not just making an observation. There's an implied and implicit request there, right? Take out the garbage. Get it done. And so women are, uh, are great at that. God blessed them with this, this innate ability to communicate. To say, uh, you know, this, this has happened. We've run out of wine. So we're not sure exactly what she thinks Jesus is going to do. But there's an implied request here that she expects him to do something. Okay. Now keep in mind, this is the first miracle that Jesus did. So I don't know. I don't know that Mary expected him to do a miracle here. I don't know that. The Bible doesn't say. But there is some implicit request here. What does she want him to do? Now think about it for just a moment. For uh, it's, it's very likely that by this time Joseph is out of the picture. He's passed away. We know that at the cross he's not there. You know, they're just Mary and uh, her sister and the others at, at the cross, but Joseph's not there. So Mary's likely a widow. Up until this point, for the last 30 years, any time Mary has ever had a problem, what does she do? Jesus. Jesus. It, wouldn't that be cool to have a kid who would always know what to do in any situation? Mine don't. <laughs> but I'm thinking that would be really cool if I could just turn to my child and say, what do we do here? And he would always have the right answer. Amen? I mean, Jesus is God. Wouldn't that be great? To grow up with a perfect kid. And I know you've got a terrific kid sticker on your van, but... Your mini man, but he, he's no Jesus. She's no Jesus. And, I'm, and she's just doing what she normally would do, right? And all of the time she's come to him. And up until this point, Jesus has been subject to his parents. He's been a, an obedient son. But now a transition has taken place. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's presented to Israel. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him and remained upon him. John the Baptist has proclaimed him as the Lamb of God. And now the disciples are beginning to follow him, and his public ministry is beginning. And now he and Mary, as difficult as it might be for her, are entering into a new phase in their relationship. Okay. And so that prompts the next response in verse 4. Jesus says, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now to us, that sounds kind of harsh. Okay. But the Greek word for woman is unite. And it doesn't imply any term of disrespect. Okay. Now, some of you guys in here, don't, don't talk to your mother this way saying, I'm going to be like Jesus. And your mom tells you to do something. You say, woman, I ain't doing that. Because you're going to get, your mom will still whoop you, even if you're old. <laughs> don't, don't try this under the guise of being like Jesus. You know, but but it, there was no disrespect here. The word unite does not mean anything. There's, it, it's not a disrespect. It's like lady or man. It's the same word, by the way, that Jesus uses on the cross when he looks at her and John 
and says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And so it's a, it's a term of endearment. It's not a term, it's not any kind of derogatory context here. But he says, woman, what is this between you and me? He is, he is letting it be known that he is no longer following Mary's agenda. He is on a timetable and he is going to carry out the Father's will from here on out. No one has an inside track to Jesus, not even his mother. There is one way to come to Jesus, and that is by the way of the cross. That is the only way. I don't care if you're related to him or not in the natural. Now he says, my hour is not yet come. Now this is the first of nine mentions of his hour, which tells us that Jesus has a schedule. He has an appointment. He has a purpose. The first three mentions of his hour are uh, stating that he had not come yet, uh, that no man was able to, to kill him or lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. The other six speak of the arrival of his hour. And it would be, ultimately his hour would be the cross. The suffering, the, the cross, and the uh, resurrection, the exaltation. Ultimately, that would prove to be his hour. Another little interesting sidebar. The first time Jesus mentions his hour is to his mother. And the last time he talks about his hour is to his father in the garden of Gethsemane when he's praying that high priestly prayer. But he said, my hour is not yet come. Ultimately, this would talk about his suffering, but I want to suggest to you that Jesus' suffering did not begin at Calvary or even Gethsemane. I would suggest to you that the entire life of Jesus, there was a cloud that hung over this man's life. Okay. You read about it in Psalm 69. I'm not going to go there for sake of time. But I believe the entire life of Jesus that he, he lived with this stigma of being an illegitimate child. I believe that. We know that even his own brothers did not believe in the virgin birth. So it's not beyond plausibility that nobody else believed it either in the community. I mean, and, and can, you, can you blame them? Can you blame them? But I believe that Mary, and I think it also, I think we also see perhaps the implicit request that when Mary comes to Jesus, you know, Mary has lived with 30 years with this scandalous thing in her life. Yeah. Used to be when there was an unwed mother, what, what would they say about it? They say she's what in trouble. There was a stigma, you know. And, and I think Mary probably had lived with that for the last 30 years. And maybe, just maybe, maybe she wanted some vindication. Jesus, why don't you show them that you are who I've been saying all this time? Yeah, maybe. And maybe Jesus is saying, well, I'm, not, I'm going to do this. He didn't deny her request uh, ultimately. But maybe he's saying, I'm going to do it, but not because you told me to. I'm not following any human agenda here. You know, people were always trying to get Jesus to do stuff, weren't they? Or not to do stuff. Peter would try to keep him from going to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And so Jesus said, my hour is not yet come. But I want to suggest to you that Mary and Jesus had lived with this stigma for a long time. And maybe, just maybe, maybe this is why Mary is so sensitive to the situation of this young couple. 
She knew what it was like to live in a little small town with a scandal hanging over her head. And maybe, just maybe, she didn't want this young couple to go through what she went through. I'm just looking at this from all the human angles, if you'll indulge me to do that. My hour is not yet come. He's on the father's timetable. His mother in verse 5, she bows out. I love how she handles this. Mary understands. She accepts the transition in their relationship. And she gives probably the best advice that anybody could ever give. She says, whatever he says unto you, do it. Do it. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And you know her, her words echo to us here in February of 2022. I'm going to say Mary gave some good advice back then, nearly 2,000 years ago, and it's still good advice today. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Now we get to uh, some more details in verse 6. It says that there were, there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Again, we see John kind of interpreting some Jewish customs for us. And we're thankful for that. Containing two or three firkins apiece. Uh, when was the last time you measured anything in firkins? <laughs> if somebody sent you to go... If, if your wife sends you for a firkin of milk, that's going to be a lot of milk. Let's look at the details. Now, this, this narrative in our Bible only, uh, only consists of, what, 11 verses? And so I believe every little detail here is here with purpose and with, for emphasis. We should immediately see the number six and understand that six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. You get over to the uh, book of Revelation and it talks about the number of the beast and what is his number? 666. And what does John say is the number of man? It's the number of man. So six is the number of man. And there were six water pots of stone. Now stone, supposedly, the Jews thought that stone could not be ritually impure because of its qualities or properties. Unlike an earthen vessel, something like a clay pot. They believed that stone... Uh, could, could not be uh, impure. And they contain uh, two or three firkins apiece. I'm told by the authorities that this, is, this could be 20 or 30 gallons each. So, <coughs> roughly, let's say conservatively, uh, 120 gallons worth of liquid. And, and I know some would say, well, why on earth would they need that much wine for the party and I well let me just let me just offer what I what I think why so many I believe that the number six represents the number of man and I believe this ritual cleansing here is showing that there's a new age coming the old, the old way of ritual cleansing is not working the water pots are not full and nobody's really they may be externally cleansed but nobody's being cleansed from their sin they're not being purified <coughs> because it's not possible that the washing of pots and the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. Only the blood of Jesus can. And, but, but I believe that this, the magnitude of the containers containing the liquid speaks of the extravagance that the Messiah would bring. Now, I'm not going to quote these, but I'm going to give you the reference in case you want to do some homework. <laughs> Jeremiah 31.12, Joel 3.18, and Amos 
verses 13 and 14, all speak of the age of the Messiah being a time when wine would flow freely. It was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of the Messianic age where the hills would flow with wine. And I believe that this speaks of the extravagance of Jesus Christ, the one who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Amen. He's going to provide enough... Uh, he's going to provide enough for leftovers. It might, it might be a wedding gift to the young couple. I don't know. That might be why he made so much. But there was quite a bit there, and the details are there. Now, in verse 7, Jesus gives some interesting instructions. He says, I want you to fill the stone pots with water, not wine. They don't have any. Fill them with water. Okay? So, the... The miracle, there is two, two stages of obedience that had to take place in order for this miracle to happen. The first was that the servants were to fill the pots with water. And notice the detail it says at the end of verse 7. It says that they were not filled halfway. They were filled how far up? To the brim. So we know that there's no chicanery going on here. Uh, there's no... There's nothing that's been mixed in with the water. It's filled to the top. And I believe this also speaks of what God wants for you and I. He wants us to be full of His Holy Spirit. Amen. The echoes of Ephesians 5, I can hear them even now. Where Paul says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. So they're filled to the brim. What a strange way to start a miracle. To fill the stone pot all the way to the top of water. Now the next thing Jesus says is even more outrageous. He says, draw out now and bear it to the governor of the feast. Now the governor of the feast in the King James, it simply means head waiter. We, would, we might say master of ceremonies. This is a guy, he may be a family member or not. He might be, I guess the closest thing we would have would be maybe a, a wedding director, master of ceremony kind of thing. And he was kind of in charge of making sure the supplies were on hand. Uh, you get the impression maybe he would be one that would taste the food and make sure. So, some folks just have this unique ability to just taste food and, and know what it needs. You know anybody like that? Maybe your mom was like that. Um, Lord, I've got a good palate too. Lori says I do. She'll just say, taste this and tell me what this needs. And I say, I need you to get out of the kitchen so I can take care of it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Lori's a good cook too. Uh, and my palate's not that great either. I'm just, but I'm always flattered when she asks me to do that. I think she does it just to make me feel good. But, but you get the picture. Maybe he would be some guy that would know just what it takes. Hmm, needs a little salt. Let me taste this. Needs a little bit of sugar, a little bit of spice. So he, but Jesus asked him to do this outrageous thing. Draw out from the water and take it to the head waiter. Can you imagine what these guys are thinking? Uh, okay, they're out of wine, so why don't I bring them a glass of water? <laughs> but, notice at the end of verse 8, it says, They did it. They bear it. In spite of the absurd request on the surface, they did it anyway. In the words of Mary, whatever he says to you, do it. And they did now it says, when the ruler of the feast, or the head waiter, had tasted the water that was made wine, 
And he didn't know where it came from. And John tells us in a parenthetical way, but the servants which drew the water knew. So here's what this tells me. It's implied here. Is that sometime between them drawing out the water and them bringing it to the head waiter, it turned into wine. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. The service which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Come here. We need to talk. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse... But thou hast kept the good wine until now. The Greek word for wine is oinos. Almost always when it's used in the New Testament, it is used of alcoholic beverage. Okay. Now keep in mind that this miracle took place close to the Passover. When does Passover happen? Anybody? What season of the year? Springtime, right? Springtime. Now, spring and summer are not great harvest times. We know from our study of Ruth, it's like the barley harvest and the wheat harvest is in the, the springtime. The grapes were harvested in the fall, summer, fall, grape harvest. So we are now in the spring of the year, and our good friends at Frigidaire have not yet invented the refrigerator. And so it's only natural that the grapes would have fermented by this time. That's a natural process. However... However, this is a big one here. The wine in that day was greatly diluted with water. It was, uh, you, can, you can do research to see how the ratios fall down. And depending on what you read, there's different ratios. But the point is, they were not drinking triple distilled Boone's Farm wine at the, uh, at, at the wedding. Okay? It was just a normal beverage. It was, it was just a normal, ordinary thing. But it was, uh, it, it was this. And, and so the governor of the feast... His remarks tell us also that this is not Welsh's grape juice. I mean, he, he tells us that it's customary to bring out the good stuff first, and then after that, you know, after the palate has been satiated, then to bring out the lesser quality. And the people presumably would not know the difference. They would not be able to tell. But he says, this is different. Now... You're going to ask me this. Do I believe that the wine that Jesus served was intoxicating? I personally don't believe that. And number one, it didn't go through a fermentation process. <coughs> and number two, this is a miracle that manifested the glory of Christ. I don't believe that Christ... Now, John is very careful. Listen to me real carefully, guys. This, by the way, this is not a sermon on abstinence or moderation. That's beyond the scope of this discussion. Keep in mind that John's gospel is about light and darkness, right? We learned about that from the very first chapter. Drunkenness is always associated with darkness, always. Those who are drunk are drunk in the night. That's what he says in Thessalonians. In Romans, he says, let us cast off the works of darkness. Don't, let's don't live in rioting, chambering, wantonness, and drunkenness, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to obey it in the lust thereof. So it would be, in light of John's gospel, no pun intended, in the themes of light and darkness, I would find it highly suspect that Jesus would have contributed to the works of darkness and got all those people drunk at the party. Drunkenness is strongly condemned in the Bible. It always is. 
And then if you look in the Bible, anytime people are getting drunk in the Bible, bad things follow. You know? And I can look over the course of my life and, and some of the things that I did under the influence. And I did, I've done some stupid things that I would not have done otherwise under the influence. And I'm not proud of that. I'm not bragging about it. But I'm just saying uh, that is, that is a, a theme throughout the scripture. So was it, what, is oinos, is it real wine? Yep. You're going to be hard pressed to make a case for grape juice. You'll look silly if you try to argue with anybody who understands Greek. But, on the other hand, the Bible does condemn drunkenness. And it's highly unlikely that Jesus created some kind of intoxicating beverage that would have had everybody staggering in a stupor at the wedding. I probably did not answer that to your satisfaction, but that's okay. Uh, we can talk about that some other time if you want to. But the point is, he has saved the best wine until now. Now, in verse 11, it says, this beginning of signs. Your Bible may say miracle, but it should say sign. Simeon, Simeon. Miracle is a different word. It's dunamis, power. Dunamis is miracle. Simeon is sign. A sign is different than a miracle. The working of miracles in 1 Corinthians 12 is the word dunamis. To get to miracles is dunamis. A sign points to a greater reality. So, this miracle, if you will, this sign of changing the water into wine is supposed to teach us a greater reality about Jesus Christ. And, and, and apparently it did because it said it manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. It's amazing. It's amazing. Jesus did this amazing miracle and it says his disciples believed on him. Now they had already shown some glimmers of faith, hadn't they? Especially Nathaniel. He had made a quantum leap. He said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. So, so they had already made professions of faith. But here it says that they believed on him. Now this expression, believed on him, it implies that their faith has been transferred and placed completely and fully on this person. If I can say it this way, they are fully trusting in Jesus for their salvation. They are fully trusting in him for their salvation. This beginning of miracles manifested his glory. All right. Let's, talk, let's, let's do a few Easter eggs here, and then let's talk about the practical application. Because after all, we wonder, why is this here? What does it mean? What, how is this going to apply to us? First of all, I want to give you a few, two or three little Easter eggs, I call them. Like the stuff at the end of the movies, you know, these little mystery things. Number one, I want you to realize that this miracle took place on the third day in Cana of Galilee. Now, last week, we covered... Four days, didn't we? First day, John the Baptist was interrogated by the Sanhedrin, the representatives. The next day, John is preaching, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, uh, two disciples of John the Baptist leave him and follow Jesus. And then on that fourth day, what happens? Uh, Philip, he believes in Jesus. Philip, Jesus finds Philip. And also Nathaniel makes his profession of faith. Now, most Bible commentators, the heavy hitters, the authorities, believe that this third day that ref is referenced in Genesis, excuse me, in, in chapter 2 of John, is three days from the calling of Nathaniel and Philip, which would be seven days. And I believe that this shows a new week of creation. There's echoes of Genesis all throughout John 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It, it should not be lost on you that in the book of Genesis, after six days, there's a wedding that takes place. Adam and Eve are married. God officiates 
the first wedding. It shouldn't be lost on you. That there, on the third day, there's a wedding. And it should also not be lost on you that John, in the first few sections, I believe that this, this first sign is the first uh, bracket, if you will, of the Gospel of John. The first section, even though your chapter and verse parses it differently. I believe that this ends the first section. Because we start with creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with Him. It starts with the creation of the world. It goes through all the themes of redemption. It speaks of the law. It speaks of the prophets. Moses. The law came by Moses. It speaks of the Lamb of God. It speaks of the death of Jesus Christ, His sacrificial death. We see that Nathaniel is a picture of true Israel that will be saved in the last days. Behold, all Israel shall be saved. That will happen in the tribulation period. And we started with creation. We go through all the redemption story. And it ends where? It ends with a wedding. Hallelujah. There is going, there's going to be a wedding at the end of all this called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And we are invited as part of the body of Christ. We will be participants in that wedding. And I look forward to that great day. Don't let that be lost. Thank you. Hallelujah. Give Lord praise. All right. That's right, kind of weak. That's okay. We keep going. All right. Next, I want you to see in the Gospel of John, there are some symmetry of signs. Symmetry of signs. All right. Now, most commentators believe that John's gospel contains seven signs proper, okay? But you could expand it, and I think we should expand it, to at least eight, maybe nine if you count the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a miracle in itself. Okay? All right. If we include the miracle at the end of the gospel of John, which is the great catch of fish, remember Jesus says, throw your net out, and they drag this net, and this time the net doesn't break, but there's fish from it from, you know... Every, every breed of fish is, is in the net. Okay. So let's look at some symmetry. You remember the chiasm from Daniel? Book of Daniel is a chiastic structure. Let's look at some of the symmetry here. I think this, is, this shows the integrated design of the Bible. And it shows that it was written by someone outside of time and space. The first miracle is the turning of water into wine. And it, the backdrop for that is the faith of Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee. Nathaniel believes, and then in his hometown, the waters turn into wine. The eighth miracle is in the backdrop of Thomas, who does not believe. And then there's the great catch of fish. So one and eight, there's a symmetry there. The second miracle, we're going to look at two and seven now. The second miracle was the healing of the nobleman's son, and he was at the point of death. The seventh miracle was Lazarus, who was dead. And by now he stinketh, the King James says. He'd been dead four days. Okay? Now, the third and the sixth day. The third miracle was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. He had been in that condition for 30 some odd years, almost 40 years. And Jesus healed him. The sixth miracle was the healing of the blind man who had been healed for blindness since birth. So the third miracle and the sixth miracle are both healing of someone with a chronic condition. Both of those miracles, by the way, happened on the Sabbath day. And both of them caused Jesus to be in hot water with the religious crew. How about that? The fourth and fifth miracle is the one that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, which takes place roughly within a 24-hour period. Jesus feeds the 5,000, probably closer to 15 or 20,000. And then he comes walking on the water. Interesting symmetry there. Four and five, three and six, two and seven, and one and eight. Speaks to me of intelligent uh, design, integrated design. All right, one more little Easter egg, and then we'll talk about the practical thing. 
John says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. When, when God called Moses and sent him to Pharaoh, the first miracle that Moses did before Pharaoh is he turned the water into blood. Jesus, who is the prophet, according to, after Moses, remember, Moses said that God's going to raise up a prophet like unto me. So Jesus, the law came by Moses, and the law brings death, right? It's a ministry of death. Moses turns the water to blood. Jesus, however, is the new Moses. He's the new creation. And he turns the water into wine. He is the source of life. He, the wine is a symbol of joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. All right. Now, practically speaking, what, what does all of this mean for us? Well, let me ask you this question. What are we going to do when the, when the wine runs out? Because sooner or later it will. Sooner or later, the wine is going to run out of your marriage. You're going to live together for a while, and, and you're going to get used to one another, and you're going to, uh, you're going to be annoyed by your spouse's habits. Or at least most of you are. Lori won't, but most of you will. Here. You're going to be annoyed by your spouse's habits. They're going to, they're going to make you do things that would never make you contemplate divorce, but you will consider murder. <laughs> they will. So what do you do when the wine runs out? Well, you do, I think, what Mary did. You've got you to come to Jesus. Amen. The thing needs to be founded on Jesus in the first place. Right. Marriage is three people. It's the, two, it's the husband and wife, but it's God in the center. It ought to be started on that foundation anyway. But when the wine runs out of your marriage, we need to go to Jesus. We don't need to run to somebody else. We don't need to get an eye for somebody else because guess what? The grass is not greener on the other side. And if it is, it's just because there's more fertilizer over there. <laughs> you think your situation is going to be so perfect if you get on with somebody else? It won't. You'll have the same problems. You know why? Because you'll be in it. You've got baggage you don't realize you've got. What do you do when the wine runs out of your your career. Some of us are so driven and we want to we want to be successful and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having goals. But what you'll find often is after you achieve one thing, it's like, okay, is that all there is to it? What do you do? What do you do when you reach that place where the wine runs out of your job? Well, I believe you need to bring it to Jesus. And let Jesus show you how that job, number one, you ought to be thankful for it and be grateful for it. But number two, understand that your job is a ministry. And say, how can I use this job as a way to glorify God? Because everybody in this room is an evangelist. We're all preachers. We're all called to witness for Jesus. What do you do when the wine of health runs out? There's an old adage, a dear friend of mine, he died what I call an untimely death. He got stomach cancer and he went down so quickly. And he was, he was such a dear friend. And I said, you know, this just really stinks. This just really stinks. And... Uh, his, his daughter had just gotten married. They were expecting a, a baby. And he said, you know, in a way it does stink. He said, but you know, the old proverb is not going to happen to me. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, once a man and twice a child. And some of you know what I'm talking about by that proverb. And he said, I'm blessed in that respect. I'll never have to go through that. I'm not going to have to go to a nursing home. I'm not going to be once a man and twice a child. What do you do when the wine of health runs out? Well, 
I'm going to suggest to you that when the wine of health runs out, your life is still worth living. There is still meaning and purpose in your life. You may not be able to do the things. Now, hey, God can heal you. I still believe God's a healer. How about you? Jehovah Rapha. He's the Lord that heals our diseases. I believe that. But I believe we can still glorify God even with our aches and pains and things that are wrong. We can still praise the Lord. We might not be able to do the things that we used to do, but that doesn't mean that we're incapable of doing anything for the kingdom of God. There's always things that we can do. You can still pray. You can still worship. You can become a mentor to somebody else and share your life experiences with them. And I could go on and on with the analogies of the why of this, that, run out. But, but go to Jesus is what you need to do. Number two, obey. Obedience. Mary said, whatever he says to you, do it. That's great advice. And many times, and I have found this in my own life, so I'm not going to share anything other than what I have found in my own experience and that is sometimes I want God to show me something else. I want God to do something different. I want God to do some new thing. And the Lord will say, you haven't yet obeyed me in that thing I've already told you to do. God is never going to speak to you about doing something else when you've left obedience undone on the previous thing that he's told you to do. Some of us are saying, God, I wish you'd do a new thing. And God said, you haven't done what I've asked you to do yet. What is he asking you to do? Well, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. But I bet you know. Maybe he's asked you to forgive that person. And you, you've, you've got a billion reasons why you shouldn't forgive him. Well, God says if you don't forgive, he's not going to forgive you. That's reason enough to forgive. You say, well, i got this thing in my life and, and it's just not fair. Well, guess what? Life's not fair. Do you think it was fair for Jesus Christ to come into the world, the perfect Son of God, to, to live with scandal and to die on a cross for your sin and my sin? Is that fair? Not, not in any world that I, any universe that I, I know of. Obedience. Next thing we have to understand is God will work with what we have. God will work. You know what Mo, God said to Moses in Exodus 4? He says, what is that in your hand, Moses? Well, it... As far as Moses was concerned, it was just a staff. It was just a rod. But when God got a hold of that thing, that was the rod of God. And it was no ordinary stick. And I would say to you that you have resources that can be used for God that you're not even aware of. We're always looking outside. God, if you'll just bless me with this, then I'll serve you. And God says, no, there's a miracle right there in your house. There's some resource at your disposal that if you will simply yield it to me, I will use it for my glory. Like, like that young boy who just had a, a bag lunch and he gave it. And Jesus took that bag lunch and fed 15,000 people. What is it that you have? They didn't have any wine. They couldn't pray for wine. They didn't have any wine. Well, they could, but they didn't have any wine. What did they have? They had water. And they, and they gave the water. The next thing we have to do is unquestioning obedience to the Lord. Also, I want you to see that in the miracle of the water to wine... The servants had their part to play. Did you see that in the story? They had their part to play in the miracle. Now, as far as they're concerned, they didn't do anything miraculous, did they? I mean, they did ordinary things. There ain't nothing special about filling a pot full of water. Anybody can do that. There's nothing special about drawing out water. Anybody that can, that's able-bodied can do that. But they took those two simple steps of obedience. They filled the water pot with water to the brim. And they drew it out, not 
not considering how foolish it might seem to the world. And they did something in the natural that resulted in a supernatural miracle. So don't lose, this, don't lose sight of this. You and I do our part, but the results are up to God. You know, the, the Corinthians, they had preacher religion. Oh, I'm Paul's disciple. Or I'm Peter's disciple. Or I'm Apollos' disciple. And Paul says, you got it all wrong. He says, one man plants, another man waters, but God's the one who causes all things to grow. These servants, their responsibility, the service responsibility was not to change the water into wine. It was just to carry the water. Your responsibility is to carry the water. God has told you and I to carry the water, to preach the word, to witness, to serve others, to be an example. The next thing we see in the application is that God saves the best for last. I like to tell you this from time to time just so you'll, you won't forget it. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been saved, your best days are ahead of you. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. God saves the best for last. If you are a believer, the best is yet to come. Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the what? The glory. That will be revealed in us in due time. I have thoroughly enjoyed our study in the book of Hebrews. And as we went through the chapter 11, that great story of the, the heroes of the faith, you understand that most of those people, as a matter of fact, all of them, to some degree, never experienced the full promise of God in their lifetime. There was some deferred blessing. Abraham lived in tents the whole time he was in the promised land. So did Isaac. So did Jacob. Joseph was in Egypt. He was outside promised land, but he gave mention of his bones. He said, I want you to carry my bones up from here. In all of those examples, there was a deferred blessing. All of the people in the book of Hebrews, every one of them, Noah, Abraham, uh, Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Gideon, so forth, they all understood this truth that God saves the best for last. They were not willing to to uh, settle for some secondary, temporary substitute. All right. Finally. The Bible says that, that this was the beginning of signs and that it manifested the glory of Jesus. Now think about this. It manifested the glory of Jesus. It's in a little small village and most of the people at the wedding didn't have a clue what had happened. Only a few people, only a hint, maybe five, maybe six disciples, the servants, probably less than a dozen people, knew about the miracle. Let me give you a few really quick. How many of you ladies, I must say ladies, would ever think of going to a wedding and dressing uh, in a more gorgeous apparel than the bride. Would any of you do that? Well, I would hope not. If you do, shame on you. <laughs> That's supposed to be the day when the bride shines, right? And I believe in here we see Jesus did not take over this party and become the center of attention. 
He let them be the center of attention. He let this bride have her day, this moment in the sun. And he manifested his glory. And he gave them an extra... Instead of their shame, instead of public embarrassment, you know, I believe for the rest of their life, everybody said, man, you remember that wedding in Cana of Galilee? Boy, that was the best one we've ever been to. That was, remember that wedding? That was so awesome. And they had the best wine. And it was like at the end of the party. It was the best. Were you there? Oh, yeah, I was there. I remember. What a great social... What, what was supposed to be, if the devil had his way, a disgraceful, embarrassing, humiliating thing turned into a joyous, monumental wedding to remember for all the right reasons, you see. But Jesus went to the wedding looking for a bride himself. And it says that the disciples, when they saw the miracle that was done, it manifested his glory and they believed on him. In what way was his glory manifested? Well, first of all, his ability to change the water into wine. But you know, when you're the creator of the universe and you create water... Turning it into wine ain't a big deal. <laughs> when you're the creator of the universe, you could have changed it into orange juice or whatever. It wouldn't, wouldn't have been a big deal for him. But we also see the grace of the Lord Jesus and how he took this humiliating situation and turned it into a positive for this young couple. And it says that the end result of this sign was that the inner circle, they believed on him. And this would be the first of many signs that they would see. But this would be the very first one, that God in the flesh would come and turn the water into wine. Would you stand? I believe that John would be pleased. I believe that Jesus would be pleased if upon hearing this message today that you would stop trusting in yourself or whatever else you're trusting in. And put all of your faith and all of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would see the glory of Jesus in this story. There may be some here today. You're a believer in Jesus. But you've become stale and stagnant. Maybe the wine has run out. Maybe your joy is not what it used to be. I want to say to you that God has an endless supply. He has a, That's the extravagance. That's why there's six, 120 gallons of wine that he made. There's plenty of extravagant grace for you here today. If you need your joy cup filled up, I invite you to come to this altar, and he will give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. Whatever your need is, bring it to Jesus. Would you come?